You may be seated. As we were uh, singing that hymn, I was sitting here finding myself conflicted, um, both with the sense of joy and relief to be able to confess that I need thee every hour, but also a, a sense in my own heart that it's really hard to be in that place and to admit that, isn't it? That we are that desperately in need of, of Jesus every hour. Well, if, um, if you're with us today, if you're here with us, we work our way through books of the Bible if you're visiting with us. And so we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Just a word of note before we jump into the sermon text. After the benediction today, our children's education coordinator, Anna Quinn, is going to come up and dismiss our children to meet with their Sunday school teachers. Um, So we're going to hang out. We're going to sit back down after the benediction. The Sunday school teachers will take the kids, introduce them to their classrooms. Um, And then after that, we're going to have a lunch together um, in the Fellowship Hall, which is the other building behind me. If you are visiting with us today, we would love for you to stick around and have lunch with us. And so please, we've got plenty of food. Please join us for that. Well, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. If you are new to Christianity, maybe don't have a Bible and are just checking Jesus out today. We've printed the text for you on page 8 of your worship guide. We've printed through verse 25, but we're only going to read uh, verse uh, through verse 19 this morning. This is God's Word. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, if Even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes. How will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will be ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. 
Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is God's word, the wisdom of man, the ambitions of all of us fail and perish, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you are the one who has spoken creation into existence and by your spirit has brought everything that is into being out of nothing. And you, by your word and spirit, are still active and present in the world today. You are holding everything together by your word. And your spirit is moving in mysterious and yet powerful ways. And so we would pray that as we come to your word, you would make what is unclear clear. That you would make us delight more in your ways that you would center our hearts on your gospel, that you would refresh us, maybe some for the first time, seeing our need of you and of your saving grace and entrusting ourselves to you. But in all things, we would pray, may we see you more beautiful and believable than any other time before. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, I've said this about the Corinthian church, that in many ways, the Corinthian church is almost, even though it's 2,000 years removed and on the other side of the world, is very similar to the American church. The Corinthians were fascinated as a people with displays of power, unlike other parts of the Roman Empire where you had to be born into a place of status. In Corinth, you could become somebody by your ambitions. And so displays of power and the spectacular were highly valued around the city of Corinth. Corinth also was set at economic crossroads. It had two ports and a road that ran north to south. It was there in a place of prominence and opulence. They loved the spectacular. And as a result, they valued highly gifted people because the spectacular was a means of rising up, getting attention. And with attention came the prominence of ambition. It was the indicator of power. Giftedness in spectacular ways was the key to unlocking more status and power in the culture of Corinth. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The spectacular was fairly easy to create, though. And that's true in any culture. The spectacular is fairly easy to create with enough ingenuity or creativity and marry that to resources. You can create the spectacular. But it's not the spectacular that has the greatest power to affect change. It's often the subversive, under the surface thing that can affect the most change. In 1989, one of the greatest World Series was being played in the San Francisco Bay Area. They called it the Battle of the Bay. The Giants in San Francisco were playing the A's to 
see who would be the world champions. It was one of the great spectacular events of the day. This was back when everyone watched baseball. For eight months, they had built building up to this day. The A's had dominated the series. Plans had been set. Hard work had gone in. All of the television stations were glued on the Battle of the Bay. It was a spectacular event. Lots of energy and time and money had been spent in creating something that everyone would watch. And then at 5 p.m. that evening, the Loma Prieta earthquake moved to the ground underneath the spectacular. And it shook. Like a freight train rumbling through, no one quite knowing where this power was coming from or what was going on. The stations shut down. The televisions went blank. The stands emptied as people ran for safety under the surface. The great power that no one had seen coming had undercut the spectacular as it literally moved the earth. That's real power. And so Paul's been developing this theme since the beginning of chapter 12. That God is on the move through the world by his Holy Spirit. And he's moving to distribute gifts to the church for the building up of the body of Christ. He's taken ordinary people in the church. Every single member of Jesus Christ has been given an extraordinary privilege of carrying out the earth-shaking power of God because the Spirit has distributed gifts to every single one. The variety of gifts is part of his design. He actually lists a variety of gifts. Helping, administration, healing, apostles, teaching. And he even makes this point that the variety of gifts is God's good design. It's, it don't value, he, he says, in fact, don't value any of the gifts more than others. Some he's given the gift of apostleship, some teaching, some prophecy, some tongues. But all play an essential role. Because God, by His Spirit, is moving in powerful ways. And, and when He moves, He's changing the landscape. And He's going to do that through the whole variety of the people of Jesus. But because the Corinthian church was fascinated with displays of power, it seems that the Corinthian church was particularly fascinated with the two gifts of prophecy and tongues. Oftentimes I think the discussion on the spiritual gifts, if you're a follower of Jesus and have been around the church, you've probably been wondering, where, what Paul, what's Paul going to do with these passages? Um, and I've joined you in that wonderment. But here, I think oftentimes the discussion on the role of spiritual gifts, particularly prophecy and tongues within the current church today, misses the entire argument that Paul's making in these chapters in 12 through 14 because Paul is critiquing their entire approach to the spiritual life, to life in the spirit. He's saying, look, life in the spirit is not about the spectacle on the field, but how God is shifting the ground under your feet so that you are less focused on yourself and therefore less focused on your experience, but rather more focused on others experiencing the deep grace of Jesus Christ. 
So that in verse 3 of chapter 14, prophecy is to be valued in the Corinthian church at that time and place. It, prophecy is to be valued over tongues. Why? Because the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. It's a more valuable gift because it involves others knowing Jesus. Likewise, verse 4 and 5. The one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. We'll get to definition of these two in just a second. But just for the sake of Paul's argument in verse 4 and 5. The one who speaks in tongues builds himself up. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues. But even more to prophesy. Why? The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets. Here's why. So that the church may be built up. And then in verse 6. The criteria... For even Paul's own experience of the work of God, the Holy Spirit, is that it benefits others. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will that benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Again, the, the manifestation of the Spirit as he's changed the ground under the feet of people who are naturally bent in on themselves so that they begin to bend outward for the benefit of others. That's real power. So then skip down to verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, and you hear what he's saying, he's like, you're a, you're a people who value the spectacular. So if you really want to value the spectacular manifestations of the Spirit, here's how to access that. Strive to excel in building up the church. Because anyone can create the spectacle. But what is truly spectacular and takes God working through Jesus by his spirit, what is truly a display of power, it was when the bedrock of our lives shifts so that we're no longer bent towards fulfilling our own needs, but considering others more important than ourselves. That's when you know that the bedrock of someone's entire existence has been transformed by the greatest power that this world has ever known. God working by Jesus through his spirit so that the heart of the gospel is this. Jesus saying, I will give myself up for you. When we come to the table, that's what we celebrate. My Savior in his body bearing my wrath that I had well deserved, giving himself up for me out of joy. Now he gives his spirit. And it's foolish for us to think. That the greatest then move of the spirit. Is to make us more consumed. With our own experience. Because the spirit who comes from the savior. Who was crucified for our benefit. Is going to move the bedrock of our lives. So that the spirit who comes from Christ Jesus. And him crucified. Is going to make people. Whose lives look more like the cross. Because it is the greatest display of God's power in the world. That he would craft entirety of history. To pour out the entirety of the full display of the power of his wrath. On the body of the son that he had crafted by that spirit. 
That's what Paul's critiquing. He's laying out a vision for them. The true work of the Spirit is Christ-centered and other-oriented. But now let's dig into the gifts that Paul's consumed with here in verse in chapter 14, particularly the gifts of prophecy and tongue. Now again, the reason that Paul is so dedicated in this chapter to the gifts of prophecy and tongue is because he is addressing the Corinthians who, because of their cultural moment, had to become too consumed with these two gifts. So he's clearing it up. It's clear that these are pretty spectacular manifestations of the Spirit in this particular cultural moment in Corinth. In fact, it's their spectacular nature that has caused the Corinthians to value these particular gifts more than others. Now, Keaton and I were talking earlier before the service and um, about this passage, and I said, you know, I just imagine if people are at Zion, they're not expecting us to break out in tongues and prophecy so there's going to be a lot of head nodding as I kind of got walk through this in agreement because some of you have come from charismatic and Pentecostal backgrounds and you're going, to, you're going to nod in agreement. I'm glad that he's drawn that out of the text, but I want to say this on the front end. We should expect more than we actually do. This world is much more mysterious and magical than any of us imagine it to be. We should expect more spectacular things by God doing what he's doing in this world than we naturally do. We tend to think of it as a closed box, like wind it up, you'll get the things that come out of it. God is on the move, and he should, we should not be surprised when he surprises us. I remember sending students to Africa over the years, and as often the case, they would see things that would just blow their minds. They Spectacular things. And they would come back and it would shake their faith, and I would think, what kind of message am I Am I sending if we're not expecting weird things to happen in the world? Because God's on the move, because Satan is on the move, because the two of them can produce spectacular things in this world. The spectacular is not all that spectacular. What is spectacular is when the gospel is made known and lives are changed. And so God the Spirit is going to be consistent with the heart and intention of the Father and the Son, and so the spectacular work of the Spirit is to make Jesus known, even in the spectacular of prophecy and tongues, because the Spirit loves His role as a spotlight to shine all His intense heat and power on Jesus, so that Jesus would be known in the hearts and lives of people. That's the ultimate litmus test for the work of the Spirit. Satan can produce spectacular things. But the one thing that he will not produce is a heart that's moved to give himself out of our brokenness, out of our shame, out of our sin, to the fullness of Jesus, to entrust ourselves there. He can produce, Satan can produce spectacular things. But the one spectacle he will never do is to make Jesus the greatest delight and the greatest joy and the greatest place of rest for any sinner. Therefore, the gifts of tongue and prophecy as a manifestation of the Spirit are given to make Jesus known by the content 
of the gospel. This is one of the reasons that we should question whether the modern tongues movement and charismatic and Pentecostal circles is really a biblical manifestation of the spirit because it is often a move away from the sufficiency of the gospel and Jesus being made known simply to the quite the opposite to some ecstatic experience where the mind is no longer engaged. But if, if you desire these gifts, Paul's, one of Paul's points is that tongues shouldn't be experienced by everyone. And one of his other points is that prophecy is to be more valued for a reason. Verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Again, he's not saying everyone should prophesy. That would contradict all the points he's made to get us up to chapter 14. Not everyone has the same gift by design, a variety. Not everyone should prophesy. Not everyone should speak in tongues. Not everyone should teach. Not everyone should be an administrator. Not everyone should be helping. Not everyone should be fill in the blank. Rather, he's saying the reason that prophecy is superior in this cultural moment in Corinth at this time is because it makes God's word known. Verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. It is superior. And he's using hyperbole. He doesn't actually think all will speak in tongues. He is he is creating hyperbole for effect, something he does repeatedly throughout Corinthians because the Corinthians uh, love the spectacle. Paul speaks in hyperbole. He's, Paul's often ironic. And he's reiterating his point. There's something superior about prophesying because of what is being done. When someone is prophesying, and here's what's being done. Jesus is being made known. Verse 3, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 5, again, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church can be built up. That's what's happening when someone is prophesying in this cultural moment. Content from God is being given and it's superior because it benefits everyone for their building up. And God is speaking, prophecy is better because God is speaking and engaging the whole person from the mind down to their heart. And they're being transformed because God's being made known to an intelligible person. Verse 19, nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Because the greatest gift that the Holy Spirit has to give is Jesus. And the gifts of the Spirit are given so that more people can know Jesus and we can more know Jesus more deeply. Now, we're still begging the question, what was prophecy in this moment in time? Well, obviously it's content from God. That's one thing that we've gotten at this point. It's content to the mind from God. And that's a consistent definition with prophecy throughout the whole of the Bible. right? In the Bible, prophecy isn't so much foretelling the future, but forthtelling, speaking forth from God into the world. Moses is the prototype for a prophet. He spoke for God to the nation of Israel and to Pharaoh. He spoke God's words into the world. 
That didn't mean seldom did he predict the future. Most of the time he was declaring curses on Pharaoh or calling Pharaoh to repentance or telling Pharaoh, let my people go. He was speaking forth God's word. In fact, when you read the Exodus narrative, most of the time it's not Moses who's speaking, it's Aaron. Because Moses' reply to God was, I ain't that good of a speaker. And so God says, okay, I'll give you Aaron. He got a good tongue. He'll speak for you. And then he says, Aaron will be as to you as I am to you. Aaron, you will be God to Aaron. You'll speak, he'll speak on your behalf. That's what a prophet did. A prophet's foretell told God's word. He spoke God's world, word into the world. And so in the early church, in this moment, prophecy was generally God making known something for the sake of the mission of the church. In Acts chapter 11, Agabus and prophets come down from uh, the church in Antioch to Jerusalem. And one of them, Agabus, stands up and he foretells that there's going to be a great famine. He prophesies, a famine's coming. And so the church then says, well, we've got to jump in. We've got to get into this mission and protect and provide for our brothers and sisters. So they jump into action and they take up an offering to provide for the church in Jerusalem that's going to be destitute. Likewise, in Acts chapter 13, just a couple of chapters later, Paul and Barnabas are set aside for missionary service by the Holy Spirit through prophecy. Someone, a prophet, had stood up and said, Paul and Barnabas are going to go out on this missionary journey. So the church said, okay, God's made his will known to us. We're going to move on. Likewise, Timothy was set apart to be a pastor of the church in Ephesus by prophecy. That's how God works. He makes himself known. And when he makes himself known, he always wraps himself up in a person. Not simply to be experienced, but to be known. And that he supports his church. And he encourages his church. And he strengthens his church so that we can carry out his mission. Because he is deeply involved with great power. Working through his people to accomplish his mission in the world. That gives us a framework for understanding the gifts of the Spirit in general, particularly this gift, God working. Speaking in tongues, likewise, was similar. Tongues was the ability to speak in a known language that you had not learned how to speak. So in verse 10, he mentions that there are many kind of known languages in the world. And then in verse 11, that there is a need for understanding those languages. And then in verse 13, those who speak in a tongue should pray for the ability to interpret because something is actually being communicated at that time. He doesn't have in mind that people are ecstatically uttering gibberish, but that content of the gospel is being made known, particularly in a known tongue that someone had not learned. And then in verse 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28 when he speaks of the strange tongues. It was the Assyrians marching into Judah. It was a known language that was unfamiliar to them. We'll get into this next week. But this really accords with Acts chapter 2. 
Because in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit is given to the church at this great event of Pentecost, they break out into tongues. And the people who are present there are confused. Why are they confused? Because the people of the early church were speaking in tongues of the countries that were in Jerusalem at that time. The Parthians, the Medes, the Mesopotamians, the Syrians, the Romans, they all were saying, we hear them speaking in our own tongues... The wonderful works of God. So the phenomenon of tongues in this cultural moment that Paul's addressing, the biblical gift of tongues meant that they were speaking in a language that was not your native tongue, but was someone else's native tongue, and you had never learned along the way. God used your mouth to communicate the gospel to someone else. It would be like someone from Brazil coming in here and then speaking and then, you know, Ryan Brown popping up and speaking Portuguese to him. They're like, where did, Ryan, when did you learn Portuguese? I don't know Portuguese, but that came out of me. Well, what was said, and the, the person next to him would be like, well, this is what he said. He just told me the gospel of Jesus in my own language. It's consistent with what God does. He works, he comes down, he makes the gospel known. That's Paul's point in verses 7 through 10 when he talks about musical instruments. The, the purpose of these distinctions isn't to make confusion, but to create beautiful order that communicates the gospel with clarity. Now, I believe personally that both prophecy and tongues were temporary manifestations of the Spirit for the time period of the apostles as the apostles were establishing the church and writing the New Testament scriptures, these particular manifestations were giving for that time as the gospel was breaking into new places for the first time. It was necessary that there be an extraordinary speaking in tongues. And before the New Testament was complete, it was necessary to have prophets. As this is just the movement of redemptive history. When God does a great act of redemption, there's often prophecy surrounding that time. You can almost march out all of the, the exodus with Moses as the prophet, the establishing of the kingdom with prophets surrounding the kingships, with the exile prophecy. So every act, there was prophecy going on. And so it doesn't surprise us when the great act of God's redemption and the person and work of Jesus Christ is also surrounded by a time of prophecy, but with every one of those events that ended. Now, other biblical scholars disagree with me on that. I'm okay with that. The essential gospel truth hangs on that point. I think the bigger thing is to hear the underlying things that Paul is saying. So let me get us back here and combine all of this together with some application. Because the movement of God's redeeming work in the world is always from chaos to order. That was true in the first creation. It's true in the new creation. What God's doing presently in the world. It always moves from transitory to permanent. From shakeable to steadfast. To something solid that can be given to his church. God acts, interprets, writes down, gives to his church something that we can build our lives on. So that Peter can say, look, I saw Jesus transfigured in the world. It was amazing. I saw him changed into his glory. There were just three of us there. I saw it. But I've given to you something even better. What you have is better than that because you have the scriptures. Better than that experience. You have the word of God stable and steadfast in your hand. And therefore the movement of God is always to make his word known and to move outward to his people 
and then create a people who move outward to others. And the Holy Spirit's ministry was always cross-centered and other-oriented. In fact, when the Spirit moves through Jesus' healing ministry, Matthew even stops. He stops his narrative and he says, let me tell you what's going on. You see all these people being healed by Jesus? This is what's going on. He takes us back to Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, in whom my soul's delight. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised weed he will not break, and a fainting burning wick he will not quench. He will not faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will establish justice on the earth, and the coastlands will wait for his law. You said, Matthew's saying, this is what the Spirit does. It's what he did in Jesus. How you know that Jesus had come from God and was full of the Spirit. He so cared tenderly for others and still does. A bruised reed. He's not going to break that. He's going to bind it up and heal it. A fainting, smoldering wick. He's not going to blow it out. He's going to say, let me fan that into flame. That's how you know that Jesus has the Spirit of God. Because that's where his heart is towards broken sinners. And now Jesus gives that ministry of his spirit to all who believe in his name so that his ministry is to make the gospel known through ordinary people whose lives are being conformed more to the cross of Jesus Christ. A growing Christian is a Christian who is giving themselves for the sake of others. If you stagnated in your Christian life, that was not a manifestation of the Spirit. (laughs) That was just a wire. If you stagnated in the Christian life, it's most likely because you're not pouring yourself out for the sake of others. You're moving against the Spirit who's moving you towards others to make the gospel known. Consolation, encouragement. There are broken people all around us. The body is doing its work. Jesus is doing his work, shepherding his people when the whole body together is caring for each other. Let me, let me close this out with this quote from Francis Schaeffer. He says this, Both the scriptures and the history of the church teach That if the Holy Spirit is working, the whole man will be involved and there will be much cost to the Christian. The more the Holy Spirit works, the more Christians will be involved in battle. And the more they are used, the more there will be personal cost and tiredness. It's quite the opposite of what we think will first be. It's quite the opposite of what we might first think. People often cry out for the work of the Holy Spirit and yet forget that when the Spirit works, there is always a tremendous cost to the people of God. Weariness and tears and battles. Walking in the Spirit, that is doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way, is not contrasted with tiredness and cost, but with vainglory. 
We cannot have God's power and deliberately place me at the center of our lives. We cannot know much about walking in the Spirit until we realize and implement the washing of feet and the humility of the cross. The measure of the Spirit's work is not personal emotional experience. Quite honestly, that's attainable with lights and a sound system and a well-placed riff and a couple drum beats. Seeding the crowd with energy can get it pumped up. That's not a manifestation of the Spirit. God's after something so much, much more powerful than what can be produced on a Saturday in a football stadium or in a concert arena. God, the Spirit moves in powerful ways. And when He does, He creates a people who are literally turned inside out and will be exhausted because they've known the power of the Spirit in our lives, making us more like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would straighten us out for we're bent inwards, that you would turn us outwards even as we come to this table. Remind us that we feed on this. Christ was crucified for our sins and in Him He has earned for us all things that we need. There is no shortage in Jesus, but only in abundance. And He gives, and He gives, and He gives, and we have no lacking. And then, God, as we leave from this table, make us a people who pour ourselves out for the sake of others. Take these ordinary elements and set them aside for your good purposes so that we might be nourished and strengthened on Christ and Him crucified for us. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.